Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a golf course. 70 courses. Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. What's up? This your boy, Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. You hear that sound? That's the sound of grapes being crushed. And that one simple act seems subtle enough, but in fact, it's what makes wine wine instead of just grape juice. From the moment the juice spills from inside of the skins of the spherical fruit, the transition from grape juice to wine is already underway. At this point, there are basically two ways this could go. The person making the wine could decide to add yeast, or they could decide to do nothing. And the ambient yeast that is on your skin, in your hair, in the air, and pretty much everywhere, will come into contact with the grape juice. And the juice, for now, is just fruit juice. It's sweet and sugar-filled. Now, yeast... Yeast love sugar and immediately begin happily munching all of it. Now, of course, after we eat, we also create byproduct, and the same is true for the magical yeast, but their byproduct is carbon dioxide and ethanol, which is better known as alcohol. So from this moment on, there are decisions to be made about how to raise the wine. And one decision that could be made is whether to do anything else at all. And when the choice to do nothing in both the vineyard where the grapes are grown or in the cellar where the wine is made, that decision to do nothing is called non-interventionist winemaking or more commonly, natural wine. Nothing added, nothing taken away. We turn now to our producer, Celine. Celine is in Berkeley, California, embarking on a guided wine tasting with a fabulous natural winemaker, Jared Brandt of Donkey and Goat Winery. 
I'm at Donkey and Goat Winery, where they're making award-winning red and white blends of natural wine. So I think when you when you taste, and one of the beauties of blind tasting, I think it's really hard to get the grape, the varietal right. I'm chatting with Jared Brandt, who's the co-owner and co-winemaker. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say it's 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 Merlot of all things. I it tastes like cider. There's definitely a cider component. I get yeah. that. So it's a Petulant Natural or Pet Nat, which means what we did is why it was fermenting, we bottled it, so it does have bubbles, not a lot of bubbles. Um, instead of adding sugar to make the bubbles and yeast, we just use the naturally occurring sugar in the grapes, like we do it while it's fermenting. It reminds me a little bit of um, like a cherry Jolly Rancher. Like there's a cherry and also like a candied apple. Like you know those apples that you get like dipped in caramel? Mm -hmm. I guess it's not a candied apple. It's a caramel apple. Yeah. I get like that kind of flavor. There's definitely like definitely a... the apple. The apple, yeah, it's really yeah. clear to me. Is natural wine more connected to terroir? The, the idea of not manipulating the wine, which I think is core to the natural wine, is, is very specific to the terroir. If you're not trying to kind of change the flavor profile or enhance it, what the land gave you and the grapevines gave you should hopefully come through in the in the glass. We got started doing skin uh, macerated white wines because we had a vineyard where it was very hard to get the grapes to go, the wine to go dry naturally um, because of the deficit of nutrients when you pressed it off the skins immediately. And if you left it on the skins, it would go dry in 15 days instead of like a year. And so I, to me, it's more terroir specific because you don't have to do any manipulation to get it to go dry. But I think that's kind of a, a debate. Um, we do do a lot of foot stomping where we want to give it a light skin contact. Um, so like we'll foot stomp it like at 8 a.m. and then at 12 o'clock we'll press it off. And so that gives it some of the tannins from the skins, but it's not over the top. And, and feet are really a great, I mean, it's kind of a miraculous thing, which is hard to replicate because like your foot actually has a lot of pressure, but at the same time, the, the pad of your foot is soft, so you can't break seeds. And so like if you're trying to, to break up a grape, but you don't want any of the heart, the seeds have harsh tannins in them. I'm not sure you can really do it mechanically. Like, you get rollers, but they're not really that soft, and you see broken seeds. But if you do it with your foot, you don't ever see that. And then on top of it, it gets even more complex if you do the stem. If you run a stem through a roller to break it up, it, like, breaks it up all the way, and you get all these weird, harsh, really green flavors more than anything else. If you do that same process with a foot, you don't get those. Can you share your thoughts and perspective about natural wine movement in California? And has it been well-received? So this is a two-fold answer for me, because we have been making wine in the same style since 2003 in California. In 2002, we did it in France. So until 2000, probably 11 or 12, California hated it. Californians were into very big, ripe, highly manipulated wine and, and being an overly general giant generalization but there was years where we sold more wine in sweden than we did in california and i think in general californians at that stage 
and the wine industry in general in the United States was really uh, seeking these really big wines. And to successfully, like, kind of the components of making like a really big red, they typically had a little bit of residual sugar. And so as a result, they couldn't be made naturally because if you left the residual sugar in them and you didn't do something to stabilize it chemically effectively, it would re-ferment and bottle. So I think starting in 2010-11, there was a radical shift. And I think this is worldwide. I think a lot of people in general are more interested in authentic food, food simpler wine, knowing the producer, knowing that it wasn't it wasn't made in a, a factory, it wasn't made in a... Uh, chemist shop that it's made made by like you know sun and water and soil napa is this weird anomaly like we work with organic vineyards and there's very few organic vineyards in napa and it's this anomaly to me because like they have infinite money um and maybe not right now because i think the wine market's going through a radical change but five years ago you know they could sell as much wine as they made and to be organic there's a little bit more risk um that said i, I think Napa's kind of late to the natural wine world. Like if I thought of iconic natural wines from California, there probably wouldn't be one from Napa on the list. I'm Alex. I'm Galit. Our next guest, Alex Shulkin and Galit Shahaf, are a husband and wife making wines in the Adelaide Hills of South Australia. So Australia is a huge, huge continent. Um, Adelaide Hills, uh, where is it exactly and what are some notable things about Australia? So, Well, it's South Australia self-explanatory. Adelaide Hills is an area, I guess, around Adelaide itself slightly more elevated there is a lot of well fair bit of grapes grown in south australia in fact in australia every state has a nickname and uh, south australia is the wine state Uh, within that wine state there are a few different wine regions and adelaide hills is arguably uh, more focused toward high-end grape growing and uh, so it happened that natural wine in Australia started happening in this area, probably less than 10 kilometers from where we are right now, uh, about 15 years ago. And the rest is history, basically. It's still it's kind of an epicenter of natural wine in Australia, but of course now it's a lot, a lot wider and um, natural wine is made in uh, every state wherever they grow grapes, which is every state except the Northern Territory. Mm-hmm. And I remember back in the, let's say, late 90s, early 2000s, um, Australian wine had a reputation internationally of being really inexpensive, really high in alcohol made with uh, kind of overly ripened grapes and of course the yellowtail explosion happened around the same time in which uh, they became one of the largest wine brands in the world and many other multinational wine companies were uh, kind of chasing them and chasing a this standard style of high 
alcohol, kind of sweet, powerful wine. Um, obviously, that is so far away from the kind of wine that you all are making. Uh, so can you help us understand in a broader sense what the transition uh, was that occurred in the Australian wine market over the last 15 years? It's not unique to wine or natural wine or anything really. It happens in every aspect of life and industries and production, etc. Things take a direction and then they accelerate in that direction, I guess. Mm -hmm. People get excited and then it just goes a little bit too far. And then sooner or later, people start realizing that it's in fact gone too far and then the pendulum starts moving backwards in the, in the opposite direction right now we just it's just moving away from uh, those um, very extracted very ripe just the way you described wines I wouldn't be surprised if in 20 years time we'll find ourselves in the big oak big ripeness zone again yeah that's a really good point actually uh, the cyclical nature of wine consumers isn't so much about them being wine consumers but just human beings um so then uh the point is well taken that i think is a good perspective for us to consider natural wine as kind of a organic outgrowth uh or the other side of the pendulum of as you say what the global wine market was a couple decades ago um, so then in your own words, can you all help us understand uh, when we're talking about natural wine, what is it that we're talking about? It's, it's a bit of both, really. When we arrived to Australia 10 years ago, we, didn't, we were not aware of natural wine and not many people, frankly, were. But we were, we were lucky enough to run into it basically as soon as we came here. And we got really excited by that didn't take long for us to get stuck into it and start doing it ourselves. It's been, it's only been eight years, but the idea of natural wine has evolved a lot. We have evolved a lot and we're still uh, figuring it out and uh, adapting and learning. And I mean, what was it about natural wine production that felt resonant with your own uh, ideas or sensibilities that made you want to start producing wine this way? Many of them would follow them quite fanatically, whereas in, in our world, the only rule that we follow is that the rules do not exist. There is not a single rule that applies universally to, to every single wine. We try to live more sustainably in our life, generally speaking. We try to consume food and pretty much everything that comes in a more sustainable way. And I think like part of this evolution of natural wine, what Alex was uh, speaking before, it's not just about the way the wine is grown and made. And it comes to furniture that you buy and it comes to everything pretty much. And now we're going into this uh, mode of more handmade, more small producers and more self-expression as well. So something that is a bit more fluid in a way. And I think it speaks to both of us in what we make. Do you sell most of your wine in Australia? We do, and that's a choice. We do export wine because 
we want to share, I guess, our ideas and our wine with the rest of the world. On the other hand, from the sustainability point of view, we don't quite like the idea of our wine accumulating all those food miles. Mm -hmm. So I guess we try and send, balance it, balance it. Mm -hmm. send, a bit, send a bit, but not too much. And we export to Japan, to Denmark, to Taiwan and Korea and, US. The, and the US. And we actually send a, a fair bit of wine to the US. Uh, our distributor is uh, Tess Bryant. We, when I say we send a fair bit, it's not, it's not a lot on the general scheme of things, but it is a lot for us because we don't make that much wine. Mm -hmm. Well, Tess Bryant is a really good friend of mine. Uh, I love her and I was, she's actually the first person who um, introduced me to your wines uh, as she developed an entire import company here in the U.S. based on natural winemakers from Australia. Uh, and so I wasn't even aware really of the breadth of this movement uh, in Australia until um, I trust that you are in good hands in, in working with her. Have you heard uh, how much of the discourse around natural wine uh, is kind of has this contentious or confrontational um, tone. Is that something that is unique to the U.S. in this moment? Or are you also seeing that uh, from the press or maybe sommeliers or consumers in Australia who might find the natural wine movement as uh, perhaps frivolous, um, and the the best case, or maybe even um, harmful to some other producers um, in the worst case. Uh, for instance, one of the common refrains here in the States uh, is that, you know, without any standards um, that perhaps the the lack of consistency, you know, among the producers who are making wines naturally could in effect undermine um, people who have the same environmental principles. A lack of consistency among those who make natural wine cannot undermine those who don't make natural wine because it would, if anything, it would undermine those who do make natural wine. Sure. The way I see it. Yep. When it comes to um, people who choose not to position themselves as natural wine, well, we don't quite position ourselves as natural wine. That's just what we do and that's what we are very happy to explain what we do it appears on our website in a very transparent fashion and the word natural is not is not used there very often so basically in in a way natural wine is something that people would refer to our wine as but it's not necessarily the term we use off that often we're really not trying to undermine anyone else's effort and we do we do respect uh, our colleagues who choose to make wine in a different way, that, that's perfectly fine. But we do see winemaking as an art form. And because of that, and mainly because of that, we really try and move away as far as we can from any standardization, because that would be, that, that would do many kind of an art form. Mm. So in 
summary then, you are basically saying that, you know, natural wine is a term that doesn't have a rigid or standard definition. Um, natural wine in its essence is really about a non-intervening style of winemaking that adds nothing at all to the fermenting grapes. It is just the, the purest expression of wine without any inputs and the output being, you know, whatever the grape has to say. Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. Roller coaster. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A., I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Do you think that overall this natural wine 
movement and this language around natural wine, has it been more harmful or uh, helpful in furthering the wine drinking world? And probably benefits the whole uh, consumer. Um, but not only the consumers, but also the uh, the winemaking side, because more and more conventional winemakers would uh, get in touch with us and just come and hang around, taste the wines, and it would be very clear that they're trying to suss out what is going on and is it really true that we can get away with that kind of a winemaking. And getting away with things is probably key here, uh, quoting a famous person who said, art is what you can get away with. It really drives more conventional winemakers to explore those horizons further. So I think in that regard, it's, it's a very positive impact on the whole industry. I, I love that. Um, but I do think that one part of it that is not commented on enough, Gayla, you mentioned the implication being, well, what is a natural wine or what are the things that are added to other wines that we might not be aware of? You know, as we're talking about it as a trend, it actually kind of sets up a change in consumer behavior and patterns, which in effect uh, sets up a change in behavior for uh, conventional producers. But um, I believe that one of the upsides of the movement that you're speaking to is that it has actually, in a very short amount of time, significantly shift uh, consumer curiosity, shifted the behavior. And to hear that you now have conventional winemakers coming to you all asking about the viability of making wines naturally, I'm actually really encouraged by that outcome, uh, regardless of how we get there, really. And as Jared Brandt from Donkey and Goat says, I think it's it's more like just it's just like kind of returning to an older school way of doing things with less manipulation. We'll be back next week to hear more from sommelier Amanda Smeltz as we continue our exploration and learn about what natural wine is, how it's made, and importantly, what it represents. I'll also be taking you on a journey very special and personal to me. We will go to the birthplace of natural wine, which is in fact the birthplace of wine itself. And then I will lead you on a special tasting to share with you what I've learned throughout my career as a recovering sommelier, and you can sample and enjoy a glass of wine along with me. So stay tuned for next week's episode of Point of Origin. Thank you to all of our guests today on the show, to Jarrett Brandt and Alex Shulkin and Galit Shashaf in the Adelaide Hills of Australia. Special thanks to my business partner who makes all things possible at Whetstone, our co-founder, Melissa Shi. Thanks, Mel. Thank you to Celine Glager, who is our lead producer, to Kat Hong, our editor, to Haven Obasalase, and Quentin LeBeau, our production interns. To our friends at iHeartRadio for helping us bring you this podcast, to Gabrielle Collins, our supervising producer, engineer J.J. Posway, and executive producer Christopher Hasiotis. 
I'm your host, the Origin Forager, Stephen Satterfield, and we will be back here next week with more from Whetstone Magazine's Point of Origin podcast. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.